So you'll remember, hopefully, from, um, from last week, we, we began by thinking about the Easter period. And I sort of made a confession that when it comes to Easter, when it comes to Palm Sunday in particular, I've struggled to get excited and the join in with the, the waving of palm branches and the cloaks on the floor and all of that sort of thing. I've struggled with that. And I said, in a way, sometimes I've struggled a bit with Good Friday and the sort of the very um, low atmosphere we can sometimes have in church as we, as we come to, um, to, to mark Good Friday with worship um, because you kind of, you know what's going to happen. And so... I know I've, I've, I've seen it many, many times, Christians who have a real spiritual roller coaster as they approach and go through the Easter period. And for some people, it's a real roller coaster. For other people, it's just a bit difficult to get into the swing of things. And that can be a challenge. And it's a challenge that we, we, should, be, we should be conscious of, we should be aware of. But as I've been preparing this week, I've been struck by a startling fact. I, I've always thought... Um, you know, I'm a fairly faithful man. I'd like to, like to think that. Um, but I've been struck by a fact that's, um, that's really hit me this week, and that is the realisation, that the, the, the fact that I have got a lot less faith than most people. A lot, lot less faith than most people. Now, before you all give up and run out of the church, please bear with me on this. I'm going to be um, explaining why I'm making that statement later on in the sermon. Um, just before we go on, um, tech team, is the clicker working? Or you can be, yeah, excellent, good stuff. So, are you sure? <laughs> so there we have it. So the, the Easter and the, the the approach to Easter, it kind of um, it it prompts a whole range of different emotions and feelings in people. And you can see there, there's um, it's a bit like a. a, a uh, any church on a Sunday morning in the run into Easter, there's the whole mix of, of emotions as people try and prepare. But what I want us to do, and we started doing this last week. Last week we looked at the Old Testament and some of the, some of the, the prophecies that were made. And we focused on the, the, some of the examples of the number of promises and prophecies that were made where God says, I will send... My son, who will dwell amongst my people. He promised to send the Messiah, who's going to dwell amongst his people. And we looked at, at, at many different examples where that promise was made. And so the Old Testament Jews, quite understandably, were waiting and waiting and waiting and generation after generation went by and it must have been an incredibly frustrating to live a life believing and believing and believing and then get to the end of life having not seen the fulfilment and being called to live in faith. And then we looked at the temple and the the focus of the temple and the temple being a place of sacrifice and the temple being the place where, where the Spirit of God dwelt in this place called the Holy of Holies that the high priest once a year, having gone through a whole host of cleansing rituals and preparatory rituals, only then could he enter into that place. God was sort of shut away and God was inaccessible 
to the Old Testament believers. And then, of course, Jesus came and said, you can destroy the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. He was talking about his body. He was talking about not the, not the physical temple because when Jesus died on the cross, it changed everything. When he walked out of that tomb and when he walked amongst his people, the resurrected Christ, and when he ascended up into heaven, the world was changing totally like never before. This, this, this global movement was beginning And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out to all people. It was poured out on the disciples and they were sent. They'd been sent to go and make disciples of all nations, baptising in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so so everything changed. But what we're going to do today is we're going to have a look at some, some more prophecies. Now, it's not more of the same. And in a way, you're getting off lightly. You see... A conservative estimate is that there's 350-odd prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. We're going to look at nine today. You see? I told you we're getting off lightly. Some, some scholars say, actually, it's more like, it's more like um, around 600 prophecies that were made. Some of them were, um, were sort of a very similar prophecy made twice or even three or more times. And so um, some scholars say, well, that's, that's one prophecy. It's just been made several times. So you'll see different numbers. But the fact is, there are a lot. There are a lot of passages we can turn to and see Jesus in the Old Testament. And we've got here... A slide. Hey, there you go. Right, first three. So, first of all, Jesus' name. Okay, so he's, he, we're told, Matthew's Gospel, his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. About six or seven hundred years before that, Isaiah We read Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, you might think, okay, um, I can can say, right Tom, um, in in 600 years time, someone's going to give birth to a son and call him Dave. (laughs) Yeah, okay, that's... Unless names change massively, there's a fair chance. But this name was important because this name was unlike any other name that had ever been given. This name, prophecy about the birth of Jesus. And it's one that Jesus himself had absolutely no control over. A baby cannot choose their name. Jesus was the one that Isaiah was pointing to. Next up, I don't know about you, so I was born in Lewisham Hospital in South London. Okay. You don't often get a cheer for that, I tell you. But you see, I didn't choose my birthplace. I had no idea until I was old enough to understand the concept where I was born. But Jesus came along, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Not because that's where Mary and Joseph lived, but because there was a census that just happened to coincide with Mary giving birth, and so they had to be in that place at that time. 
The prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So again, that one, that one that will be coming out of Bethlehem, that is one from ancient times. Well, how does that work? Well, it's because, because it's the son of God. It's because it was, the, it was the son of God, the promised one who would be born in Bethlehem. And sure enough, sure enough, centuries later, you've guessed it, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Even, even the bloodline of Jesus, even the bloodline of Jesus is prophesied. There's no way a child can, can control their bloodline. It just cannot be done. 1 Chronicles 17. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Again, the bloodline of Jesus there is being, is being foretold. And Jesus, Jesus came and he, he formed, he, he formed the, the, the end point of a bloodline that had been set up and designed. And we read about it in scripture and we can look back and we can see God's plan for his son to come into the earth. So that's his name, his birthplace, his bloodline, all of these things which he could have had no, no control over. You want more? There's more. Right. Next up, we've got the virgin birth. Again, we go back into Isaiah, back into the same verse. You would have noticed it earlier on if you were, if you were paying attention. You'll see in that same verse that we started with, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child. What a bizarre statement. What did the Israelites think when they heard Isaiah coming out with this? This is, this is a ridiculous statement. It's a contradiction in terms. The virgin cannot be with child. If she's with child, she's not a virgin. If she's a virgin, she can't be with child. But we know the Christmas story. We know that this was foretelling the birth of Jesus. Then we have the Magi. In Psalm 72, the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him with gifts. And sure enough, distant rulers came and they presented Jesus with gifts because they had recognised that this was a sign from God. It was, it was written in the stars. We don't like much talking about things being written in the stars when we come into church, but Jesus was written in the stars. Why? Because God has authority over... over astrology, astronomy, whichever the correct terminology is, God has authority over it. He was the one that put those stars into space. So he was the one who put that star over that place at that time. So those rulers followed it and got to kneel before Jesus and present him with gifts as the psalmist foretold.
As we know, Jesus performed many miracles. He, he performed many healings. We know that Jesus caused the blind to see. He caused the deaf to hear. The lame were healed. The mute spoke. Well, in Isaiah chapter 29, in that day the deaf will hear, hear the words of the scroll, and out of the gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then will the, lamp, the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Jesus performed so many healings and miracles. He cast out demons. He challenged people. He changed lives. He did so much and he fulfilled so many prophecies. So, so, so many. Now, we often talk about this in church, don't we? We talk about the fact that Jesus was foretold and, and we know this, but um, I'm quite a sort of a visual learner. I find it helpful to have pictures and things like that. Um, and so I, did, I, I wanted to try and find a picture that would stick in my mind and, and hopefully, hopefully not just mine, just to demonstrate, to demonstrate what we're talking about here with these prophecies. Now, anyone here ever been to Texas? Yeah, some people. Um, I've not been, but it's a pretty big place, yeah? Yeah, okay. Um, so, up there, this slide explains. So first of all, we've got a map of Texas, and just to give you an idea, if you're like me and you haven't been, of the size of Texas, you can see um, it, it covers the area of 10 European countries um, with, with plenty of room to spare. Texas is big. Okay, and um, the question there, what are the chances of any one man fulfilling just eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled? So the, the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies is one in, what's that, ten, a hundred, it's not hundred thousand, not, not million, not billion, trillion. Do we get into, I don't know, gazillion there? Or is that just a word I've made up? I'm not sure. It's a big number. To put it another way, to put it another way, the reason that the Texas thing came about is because um, someone said, someone's uh, written, um, the mathematician has written that um, the chances of eight prophecies, so we've just talked about nine, okay, but chances of eight prophecies being fulfilled. If you take an area of the size of the state of Texas and you take um, coin, pound coins, say, and you fill that whole area two feet deep in pound coins and then you take one of those coins and you put a mark on it and you chuck it in and you shuffle it all about and then you blindfold someone and you send them into Texas. And you tell them to walk around two feet deep in pound coins, the whole area of Texas that covers more than the area of 10 European countries, and tell them to pick a coin. The odds of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies in his lifetime is the same as that blindfolded person walking around Texas two feet deep in pound coins, picking out the one marked coin. That's the probability that we're talking about here. 
Okay, And that's just for eight prophecies. There were over 300, possibly over 500, depending on whose numbers you go with. But, but don't take it from me. There's a professor of mathematics. Um, this guy, uh, Professor Peter Stoner, he says the probability of one man fulfilling even just 48 Old Testament prophecies is 1 in 10 to the power of 157. That written down looks like this. I'm not even going to attempt to say what that number is. I don't think there's even a word for it, but that is the probability. Now, I'm not a betting man, okay? You'll be pleased to know. But if I was, and I walked into a bookie, and the three o'clock at Kempton Park had a horse in it with those odds, I wouldn't be putting a tenner on him. You wouldn't, would you? You'd be crazy. You'd be mad. And yet, Jesus did that. In fact, he didn't do that. That's 48. The chances of all of those prophecies being fulfilled in one person's life is beyond comprehension. That's 48. We're talking significantly more zeros added on to that number. So I started today by saying... I have a lot less faith than most people. And the reason I say that is because most people in the UK would rather take their coin and say, do you know what? That one, yeah, I think, I think, that's, the, I think, that's, I think that's the truth. I, 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 this guy might have come along and fulfilled all the prophecies, yeah. Okay, yeah, you can read about them. They were, they, were, they were made in the ancient writings. They were fulfilled in his life. Um, but that's not enough for me. That's not enough for me. You see, they've got so much faith, they'd rather put it in the one. As followers of Jesus, we go with a safe bet. We go with a safe option. I know that so often the world looks at, looks at Scripture, looks at the church and says, you're mad, this is a load of fairy tales, this is nonsense, this is, this is just a, an ancient relic that you're, you're insisting on clinging on to. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a crutch for the weak. But I tell you what, if I walked into a bookies, I know where my money would be. Be on Jesus every single time. Because the weight of evidence, the body of evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the one true son of God, is so overwhelming. You'd be mad not to put your faith in him. The more we examine the life of Jesus, the greater the weight of evidence becomes. This Easter time, we're going we're gonna to celebrate Easter and we'll have friends and family who enjoy a long weekend. And that's all Easter is to them. That's all it means. And it's heartbreaking because Jesus offers us a relationship with our Creator, with our Father, with our God who loves us and who, who provides for us, who cares for us, who wants to have this relationship and one day wants us to dwell with him for eternity in heaven. But so many people in this world 
Rather than celebrating that wonderful, glorious truth this Easter, we'll simply celebrate a couple of days off work. Let's pray for them. Let's have a confidence in that weight of the, 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 the body of evidence, the weight of evidence in support of Jesus, in support of the Christian faith. Folks, we don't put our faith in a myth. We don't put our faith in something that is just a whimsical fancy, in something that has no grounds. We put our faith in evidence. We put our faith in truth. We put our faith in something which has stood the test of time, which time and again people have come along and tried to undermine and disprove and mock. But it can't be done. It can't be done. Because this is the word of God. This is the son of God. We can have absolute certainty in our God. There are so many people in the world who say, I believe in something. I believe in something. And then leave it at that. And I have conversations with people and I say, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? What, what, what do you believe in? Oh, I don't know, really. And I say, well, you can't, surely you can't accept that. You either believe in nothing you either look at, look at God and say, I just don't believe. There is nothing there. That is it for me. You live and you die and that's it. Or, or, even if you just explore a little bit of faith, you have to start saying, what are the implications? What does this mean for me? And for us as Christians, this means that we have a relationship with our heavenly Father who created us, who knows us, who cares for us, who loves us. Who loves us. And that is amazing. That is the reason that we should sit there with smiles on our faces. We should sit there with a glow in our heart. Not because life's a bed of roses because we know Jesus. We know it doesn't work like that. But because Jesus is in whatever struggle we're going through with us. And he loves us. And so as we go through this Easter time, as we face Palm Sunday, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be joining in with the celebrations this year. I'm looking forward to next Sunday. I'm looking forward to waking up and to knowing that we are remembering the day when Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem and the crowds cried, Hosanna, welcome the King of Kings. I'm looking forward to that. Because I know Jesus loves me, and I know that Jesus is absolutely who he claimed to be. And I'm looking forward to Good Friday. And of course, I wake up then feeling, feeling that little sense of unease, because you can't help but think back to the, the, the atrocities that Jesus suffered, but I'm going to be joyful. I'm going to be joyful because Jesus did that for me. And I don't know anybody else who would do that for me. It's staggering. It's amazing. It's wonderful. And it's true. And then when we get to Easter Sunday, and we wake up, and remember the folded grave clothes and the tomb and the stone rolled away, and the figure in the garden, and the risen Christ appearing to more and more and more people. I'm going to remember the wounds in the hands and in the side and in the ankles and the feet and remember 
Jesus rose from the grave. And there is a weight of evidence to support that. It takes, in fact, there's such a great weight of evidence, it takes a lot, lot more faith to believe in something else or nothing than it does to believe in Jesus. I have a lot less faith than most people because most people don't believe in Jesus. Most people have the faith to look at the evidence for Jesus and say, nah, I haven't got that faith. For me, the weight of this body of evidence is so immense, I can only put my faith in one place. And my prayer is that more and more people will feel the same. We're going to be sharing communion together shortly. But before we do, let's just remember that when we celebrate Christmas together, there is a focus, and that focus is on the baby in the manger. When we celebrate Easter together, the focus is on many different events, and that's part of the reason why sometimes we can all focus on different events and therefore have a different response spiritually. But let's focus this Easter not on the pain or the suffering or the anguish that we see Jesus experiencing on the cross. Not on the injustice or the betrayal or the denial that was carried out by those around Jesus. Not by the condemnation of our own sin that we sing. It was my sin that held him there. No, it wasn't. It wasn't our sin that held him there. Do you know what held him there? Do you know what the focus of our Easter should be? Do you know what the motivation for Jesus to be on that cross in the first place was? Yes, love. Love, that's what it's all about. We're going to celebrate this Easter time. We're going to celebrate Palm Sunday. We're going to celebrate Good Friday. We're going to celebrate Easter Sunday. And we're going to celebrate every day of our lives because Jesus loves us. And the evidence is overwhelming. And I'll get excited about that, as you may have noticed. I'm really excited that we're going to have the children coming back in and joining us for communion shortly. And... um, The reason I'm excited is two things. I'm excited because it's important that they see communion. They see it as part of the Christian faith. And they've they've had some teaching. Nick has made it clear to them that if if they and their parents, and this is where parents come into play, um, are comfortable that the child has a relationship with Jesus that recognises him as their saviour, then the child should take communion. At the same time, whether, whether it's a child or whether it's someone in here today who doesn't yet know Jesus as their personal saviour, then they shouldn't take communion. Because communion is a gift given to those who follow Jesus. Communion is something that is so special. It is something that is sacred. It is something that was given by our saviour. And it shouldn't just be joined in with out of a sense of guilt I used to feel a bit guilty when I first started coming to church and I wasn't a Christian and I just let the elements pass me by. I felt like I was disrespectful somehow. But I'm enough glad that I didn't look, uh, I didn't look at it and think, oh, go on, I'll just, I'll just have, a, have it just to join in. I'm glad I didn't do that because that's not the right attitude because communion is something so special because communion is a, is a time when we remember what Jesus did for us and we're remembering not a fairy tale but a truth. So we're going, to, we're going to worship. While we're worshiping, the children are going to come back from their groups and then we're going to share communion together.
Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much, Lord, for the, the weight of the body of evidence that Jesus is truth. And Father, I thank you for the, the prophecies that we've read this morning. I thank you for the hundreds that we haven't even looked at. I thank you, Lord, for the, the, that calculation that we saw and for the reminder of the reliability of the evidence for Jesus. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you that day by day you add to that body of evidence by working through us and amongst us and in us as well as you use us to build your kingdom. So Father God, bless us now as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.